This evening's talk (coughs) is titled The Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. And uh, beginning with a quote, it's uh, from the Zen tradition. I don't know who the person uh, that said this is, though. Pain like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended uh, a meeting of, of Dhamma teachers or Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Uh, Buddhist traditions, different lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. And the Dalai Lama, who was uh, one of the guests and one of our guests of honor at, at this meeting, said that he often, that often his response to this question, which he said he hears every once in a while, is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This uh, definition of realization, of Nibbāna, being the complete purity of the mind and the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant, a completely liberated being. In hearing His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, speak of this, there was the sense that He spoke from a very uh, deep place of confidence in really, truly believing that this is possible. In the many, many times that I've sat with uh, and practiced with uh, Sayadaw uh, Upandita and with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, the suttas, uh, in the suttas, the Buddha often uh, also speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of, of freedom in the same way, in a very similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental 
effort in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find out, at least to some degree, that we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. We begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more and more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some uh, words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging or condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence in us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there certainly have uh, been times when I've experienced 
various difficulties within myself and in relationship to the teachings uh, and the practice. When I've been able to be really honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. And he says, this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with uh, Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said to him, this is too hard. And Sayadaw looking at me with great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter just simply said, no it isn't. (laughs) That's all he said. (laughs) And it's true. It's really true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are really filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's it's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desire and attachments, confusions, pains, etc. It's a long list from our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experience. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. 
Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. And very important, it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Most all of us need to discover the skeletons in order to really find a true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've maybe been hauling around, often unconsciously, unwitting, unwittingly, maybe for quite a long time. The author Stephen Mitchell has a version of the myth of Sisyphus that I'd like to share with you at this point. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it, It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some really powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion. Each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and from the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to 
analyze it over and over and over again. Or the habit of trying to get rid of it. Or fix it. Or trying to ignore it. Or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity. The, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that None of these reactive habitual patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and to see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, or seeing through, as I like to say, is opened. Things are as they are the beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this moment. We leave everything as it is our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 or 30 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, without giving these habits of the past continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. <coughs> There's a piece from Bhante Gunaratna, the Sri Lankan monk, Bhante Gunaratna's book called Mindfulness in Plain English, <coughs> where he says, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. And he goes on and says, great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in and investigate within the heart of kindness. So we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. 
We simply resolve and persevere with great patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes, of course, there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of of suffering. Relinquishing what are really our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says, don't, or said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering, this is the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is contingent, and thus it's conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachment, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place. And here to stay. Which will always inevitably create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past. We project into the imaginary possible future, solidifying both in our mind, 
And yet life just keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, during the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows occurring, even often double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together, just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time, looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, as I, I am, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, this present moment, this present moment, just as it is right now and right now, and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different, that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, 
hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided, or ignored. We have a saying in English, I'm sure you all know it, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's uh, teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With, in fact, ignorance providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or an absence of true understanding that's experienced as what's often called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion caused by the lack of a careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So, going on now with exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states. And we'll begin with fear. In our practice and in our life, outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feelings like, I won't attend to. I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like I can't be with or I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or this old familiar experience or this strong emotional state or this pain in the body or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe sometimes in this feeling frozen or feeling caught or just simply unable to open and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. And we've all had these kinds of experiences. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or or blaming the critical mind if we take it up and believe in it believe it something like well it's his fault or it's because she or it's because they this fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment 
self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, and maybe coming up to into feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. And I'm sure if I went around and asked each person what being a perfect person would mean to them, each one would have a different view of that. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably different than how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. This comes from the uh, Taoist teacher Chong Tzu. It's his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, uh, doubt, or blaming and criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath I think that often we're afraid of the fear afraid to look at it directly especially if we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this from him in this interview, my inward response, I didn't say it out loud, but my inward response was, well, that's easy for you to say. Obviously, some uh, resistance and irritation in those inner words that were going on in my mind. But eventually, I began to see that fear is just fear. It can be a strong experience, but it's just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our concentration and mindfulness, rooted in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz 
says this, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger and our mind and heart gets stronger and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not my, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. And it may be a moment of a very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not something solid, not something permanent. And it's clearly not me or mine. It's not that the energy of fear (coughs) will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear. We learn to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly, see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. Sometime within the last couple of years, there was a story in National Geographic magazine about a woman named Garland, Garland, who was a 40, is a 40-year-old woman. She's probably 42 now or something. And she was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And this comes from that article about her. This is just a little tiny bit of it. And uh, it's talking about her husband, Rolf, and her relationship to fear. As you can imagine, climbing K2, fear came up every now and then. (laughs) So her husband, Rolf, he, Rolf, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. He didn't go all the way up on that climb. He stopped at one point and went back down because of what he felt, saw and felt, which was appropriate for him. She went up to the top. And this is her fear. This is Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand. She didn't feel afraid. 
And the article tells us that uh, Gerland was a practicing Buddhist. And when she got to the top of K2, she took a Buddha out of her pack and placed it on the top of the mountain. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.